Well, it's really good to see everybody this afternoon. I want to dive right in here with what we have. We've been spending the last few weeks talking about Vantage Point. How many of you guys have been encouraged the last few weeks on this series we've been going after? You know, God has us in a position where he's wanting us to be willing to move the feet of our hearts from one place to another that we could see things from a new perspective. You know, some of us have marriage situations in our lives where God doesn't want to change who you're married to. He wants to change your perspective on your marriage. Come on, somebody. You know, some of you guys are in financial situations right now, and God isn't necessarily wanting just to, um, you know, give you a different financial situation. He's wanting you to look differently at your money. You know, the idea of transformation is that you have the same substance taking on a new shape or a new form. Look at your neighbor real quick and say, God made you the right way the first time. Come on, he made you the right way the first time, and there's a lot of us that can get disenfranchised, disillusioned, we can get in debt, we can be just like David and his men in the caves of Adullam, and we can feel like we just need to hit the eject button. Anyone have an eject button day or week? You know, a, a, a few of you, and there's a few honest people in the room, all right, praise God. And, uh, you know, and so it's easy for us as Christians, I think, sometimes to, um, to uh, grow weary in our good doing. And what it looks like is it looks like um, us being uh, just so um, distracted by what's not happening that we're not aware of what is happening. And so I, I believe there's an opportunity for us to upgrade our vantage point to get out of one position and to see things from another position. And so one of the areas I think is also really critical for us in this is me, not just me seeing things from a new perspective because I will, was willing to change my mind, but to be willing to see things from other people's perspective. You know, what's for sure true is that the Jesus inside of the person next to you looks a little different than the Jesus inside of you. One of the limited core values on transformation that the evangelical church has is that transformation happens when you begin to look like me. Come on. <laughs> Come on. How many know we don't need people to look like me? We need people to look like Jesus. Which means we need to begin to learn how to translate the gospel. We need to learn how to translate what it is that God's saying, what it is that he's doing, so that we can understand how to present who he is, so it's ready to meet the need of the person in front of me. Can I get a big amen? How many are meeting the needs of, of influential people is different than meeting the needs of, of those who are looking to just to simply get a job? How I many the language is different to go reach to those who, who live in another nation versus those who live in our nation? The needs are different from first world to second world to third world nations. It's different from people groups and tribes and ethnics and cultures. And some of us need to begin to be aware that there's a narrative that's trying to separate people and is beginning to say that people are our enemy. Come on. And, and what it's trying to do is it's trying to say that, that we have to attack people who have a different vantage point than what we have. How many of there's a little bit of division trying to happen in the world right now? There's a narrative in the world right now that people aren't getting along, that we're not united. And, and, and while there may be some that have some behavior like this, I would like to propose to you that, doggone it, things are getting better. I mean, things are getting better. It's an amazing time to be alive. 
It's an amazing time. And, and so I talk often about that. And so I don't want to rehearse those principles of why. You can go listen to the podcast and just listen for the last few weeks. We've been talking about it. But things are getting better. And we got to. And one of the ways that we're going to realize and become aware of how good things are getting is picking up the feet of our heart and beginning to go stand in someone else's place and begin to see things from their perspective. You know, it's interesting because you can move the feet of your heart and not have to necessarily even change what you believe is the outcome. This is called empathy. Look at your neighbor and say, we all need a little more empathy. You see, what's true is the challenges in your life, the story of your life, where you've been in your journey has created your current perspective, which means there's a portion of truth that's very much alive for you because it's what you feel, it's what you've understood, and yet there's someone over here who has a different experience and their truth looks different because of their experience. It is true. It's very true. Look at your neighbor and say, that's true. You know, I love it that the, I, I, just look at your neighbor one more time and just say, I love the Christ in you. Come on, just tell him, I love the Christ in you. You know, this is the hope of glory. I love it that I look just like Jesus and you look just like Jesus, but yet we look a little different, amen? Which means I need you in my life to gain a broad perspective of who God actually is. Come on, we were made in his image and in his likeness and fearfully and wonderfully, which means there's something inside of you that you carry that looks like Jesus that I'll never encounter until I encounter it inside of you. Come on, somebody. Now, for some of you, you heard me say that a thousand times, but it's absolutely true, and we're ready for the upgrade on it. Can I get a big amen? And so today, we're going to dive back into Vantage Point. Why don't you turn with me to the book of James, chapter 3. We've been using James as our source point for this. We're going to jump in and read a few uh, passages of Scripture and, uh, and go on go a little further. You guys ready to move the vantage point a little further with me? Come on. Verse 1 of chapter 3 in James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with great strictness, for we all stumble into many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole, his whole body. But if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Someone say great things. Verse 13, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast excuse me, and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Someone say, those who make peace. Turn with me to the book of Luke, if you don't mind. Luke 15. I'm going to read just a little bit more here, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Luke 15, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Everyone say, all drawing near to him. Who was drawing near to him? All of the tax collectors and the sinners. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes, the whole party's there, everybody, they grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she is found, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found that coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over the sinners who repents. Verse 11, And he said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property among them. Verse 25 says, Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad that your brother was dead, he, but now is alive. He was lost and is found. Father, I just thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing today. Lord, I thank you for your spirit that is moving in the house. Lord, we just say yes to what you want to do right now. And uh, we just open our hearts in Jesus' name. Someone say amen. Hey, so James is talking about in chapter 3, hey, we need to realize that we have something inside of us that can move the whole body. Come on, how many know that life and death is in the power of the tongue? And so we need to be, uh, begin to be aware of the fact that our words are powerful. Can I share something with you? Transparent moment. I may have shared this earlier um, with some of you, but... You know, I, I'll never, I'll never forget. I was, uh, I was in Haiti. I was ministering, and I got out of a van. We had driven into um, a farm area, and a kind of remote area. And then, as we showed up, you know, of course, there's three, there's three or four of us Americans that are in the in the car, and and uh, the one gentleman that was driving us and leading us had been raised in Haiti all of his life. He was fluent and and Creole, brilliant man, and has given his whole life for the Haitian people. Uh, but he's an American. And, uh, and so us four Americans get out of this van in a remote village. It doesn't see Americans very, very often, especially white-skinned people. And so we got out of the van, and as we jumped out of the van, I had left just a small little bag in there that had, um, I think it had some sunscreen, had some water, uh, nothing of high value. Um, but the, I did like the little bag as well, little travel bag. And so as we got out, um, people were beginning to start to come towards us. And I looked over at our, our leader, and I said, hey... Um, should we lock the car? My bag is in there. I don't want it to get stolen. Now, this sounds like, you know, kind of like not that big of a deal, right? I mean, you would think like if you're in a, in a place you're not familiar with, you'd want to lock the car. This sounds practical, sounds logical, maybe even sounds smart. 
Um, but how many know that if you've never been somewhere and you have the assumption that something isn't safe and then you verbal process that out loud in front of other people that you think they're not safe, you might not be creating life with your tongue. <laughs> Little learning moment for Drew Neal. Hey, is, my, is, the, is the van safe? I don't want my stuff to get stolen. Hey, God bless you. We're here to help. I mean, I, I deserved the California hello at that moment, right? You know? I won't show you what the California hello is if you don't know. It only requires two appendages, I'll tell you that. And, uh, and so, I, I mean, like, it's just so funny how, how passionate we are and how motivated we are to want to help. How many in this room would raise your hand and say, I want to help? Like, it's just, I, I, I want to help people. I love to help people. You know, it's a core motivation of Christianity, and it's what makes Christianity so amazing. But I tell you this, when we're, when it's, when we're, when we're moving out and about in the world, one of the places that we need to pick up the, the, the feet of our heart is understanding the power of our words, that when we say something from a, from a perspective, how does someone else translate it? How does someone else hear it? You know, and, and so what, you know, this, the, the rudder on a ship, right? Just think about the picture. You, you turn the little rudder, the little fan at the bottom of the ship, and the whole thing will turn. You know, and, there, and there's many of us in, in, in our blind spots and in our, our attempt at doing good, oftentimes we can create a little bit of chaos because we don't realize how people are experiencing us process our fear, our concerns, and our assumptions, and one of the things that God's getting us ready for is to really learn how to disciple nations. And to disciple nations, we get this glorious opportunity to come low on our donkey and to come serve and to, and to first of all, to come learn. And there's something really significant about shifting the posture of our heart because our words expose our heart, don't they? And so you don't need to change your words. We need to change our heart position. And then our words change. You know, some of us have a default position that when we get home from work, that the next conversation we have is going to be pretty difficult. We have, a, we have a perception that something is about to happen, an assumption because of what our past experience has been, and we are creating a future experience with our, the declaration of our words. You know, some of us are going in, into work and we're believing that nothing is going to work out well today because, and we're verbal processing this with our coworker who sits in the cubicle next to us. And then lo and behold, the two of us are in a meeting and an hour later we're both processing in a meeting with other people how bad this is going to go. And then guess what? It's going pretty bad. And then people are walking out, walking out of the, those situations and, and, and they're saying, wow, I, you know, you just kind of had an assumption that this was going to go a certain way. Anyone ever gotten into a conversation with your spouse and you realize they already have their mind made up? Conversation. Anyone had a conversation before, if you know what I mean? We need wisdom. We need wisdom. We need a new sense of wisdom when it comes to loving people where they're at. You know, love's a powerful thing because it never lets anyone stay there, but no one will ever encounter love through you unless you're willing to go stand where they're at. Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. 
Let that sink in a little bit. I said, no one will encounter the love that you carry unless you're willing to get off of your horse and go get on a donkey. Come on, somebody. And, and, I, and I think there's an opportunity for us in the book of Luke to understand this a little bit. And so I want to frame this and kind of use this as a, as a place that will dwell for the next few moments. And, and uh, you know, Luke 15, um, how many guys love Luke 15? Very famous passage of scripture. And uh, Luke is kind of an interesting guy. Um, he's the kind of guy who um, really understood people groups. When you begin to uh, break down the writers of the Gospels and look at what their motivations were, um, you see that they all had a desire to want to do something. They were trying to accomplish something with their writings. And so um, how many know that uh, if you write something, there's an intention for why you're writing it? There's a reason these writers, you know, are writing these books, and, and many of them didn't really believe that, you know, Americans were going to read this after they wrote it. No one thought that they were writing, you know, to some people at Generation One that were going to read it in 2018. They're writing to a specific people group. They're writing with an intention to want to convey something and the way that makes sense for them to convey it. And so we, we got to understand a little, a little bit of historical arc here. I think it will help us to set and, and frame the context of what, is, what more is available here. Um, you know, I think it's interesting that Jesus tells these three stories in this order. Have you thought about the fact that Jesus tells three parables in this order, and it's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of what we know as the prodigal son, which we are all now renaming the parable of the good father. But, you know, it's interesting because um, Jesus is talking to somebody here. So Luke has a desire to communicate something in telling us this story. And in it, Jesus has a desire to communicate something to the people that are listening. And we know the people that are listening are tax collectors, sinners. We know that scribes and Pharisees are there. And it just so happens to say that they are grumbling. They got their rudder. Their rudder is moving. It is trying to shift the boat in a different direction. They are grumbling and saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. There's a, there's a couple of powerful people groups that were at large in Israel. And, you know, oftentimes we, we think that Jews were all the same. We think if, if you're talking to a Jew, well, a Jew is a Jew like a Jew is a Jew. And they were all just Jews. And they were all, they all considered themselves the children of Israel. And, and uh, if you do a little bit of a deep dive on people groups, you would realize that there are historically um, founded and, and historians feel pretty confident there are at least 13 people groups, 13 different forms or sects of, uh, of people groups who had a perspective on the Torah. They had a perspective of what they thought was important to God. And guess what? None of them agreed. None of them agreed. Some of them thought that they were the exclusive people. They were the only ones that God had chosen. Some of them thought that they were that their whole job was to protect Scripture and they were willing to lose their lives over it. Some of them were just people who thought they were smarter than everybody else. Some of these people groups were zealots and they were just there to overthrow Rome in the name of God. And, and, uh, and there was like all these different people groups that were all really vying for attention and control in Israel. After the Pharisees had replaced the, um, the priests um, 400 years before Jesus, all of a sudden the power brokerage in Israel shifted from a Levitical power brokerage into a rabbinical power brokerage. And so if you were a rabbi leading a sect of people, you were vying to be the most important and the most influential. And so the other thing that we know is that 
is that uh, rabbis were judges. They were the modern judges of their day. They were people who um, uh, decisions were brought before them. And you see the woman who was caught in adultery. They, why do they bring her to Jesus? One of the reasons they brought her to Jesus was because of the rabbinical authority that Jesus had to make decisions on the behalf of society. And so he, here we have all of these dynamics of people groups are, are showing up and, and, and showing themselves um, within what's going on. And, uh, and, and we're a little unfamiliar with this stuff. We're a little unfamiliar of knowing who Jesus is talking to when he's talking to them and the points that he's trying to, to provoke. And, and so if I had a lot more time, I could build a case for you that Luke, as a writer, is really sympathetic to people groups. Luke had a desire to want to really show that more people were, were included than what they thought. Has anyone ever um, had to, you know, ask for forgiveness because you excluded somebody? I've, I've had to do that before. I've had to do that before. And, uh, and it's a powerful moment when you understand that someone that you thought was out was actually in. And isn't it a powerful moment when you go back to that person, you ask for, for you know, forgiveness, and then they come and they join and they're a part, and there's a beautiful moment that happens, isn't there? And so Luke, Luke was considered a, a sympathizer to Samaritans. Let me tell you a little about the Samaritans real quick. They were one of these 13 people groups. They were pretty radical people. And, uh, and so they were considered half-breeds. They were people who were, um, who were partial Jews. There was some type of criticism about their people groups that they, um, that they weren't full-bred Jews. And, and so whether it's just a, a weird ancestor, you know, in the line somewhere, there was just a reason that the Jews, certain groups, decided to call them out. And so they went to such great lengths to, um, hello, uh, they went to such great lengths to do this that they actually, the Samaritans were considered one of the more ostracized people groups of their day. They were considered to be the people who were the least worthy of, of approval, the least worthy of, of connection, the least worthy of, of power, the least worthy of acceptance. They were, the, they were the least worthy people of their day. And so it's interesting because, you know, um, according to Scripture, we know in other passages that it was, it was against the law for, um, for, for, the, for the mainstream Jews, if you will, to, to fraternize with the Samaritans and and, uh, and, and so it was considered this faux pas. You know, if you think about things today, people groups today that we don't talk to. This gets a little uncomfortable when you get in these territories. But how many know that we all have a few faux pas in, in, our, in our world of those that we think that maybe we shouldn't talk to too much? Come on, like, like a Packers fan, right? I mean, you can't talk too often to a Packers fan. Come on, somebody. The tension just released in the room. That was nice. You know, but sometimes Packers fans shows up, and they're a little louder than we would like to be. You know, Packer fans shows up sometimes and just looks a little bit different than me. They wear that stupid cheese on their head. Like, why do they do that? Like, do they actually think that looks good? Like, I mean, like, I mean, like, for real, like, why, cheese head, that's what you want to call yourself? Really? That's what you, like, oh, my goodness, like, I would never be a Packers fan. I mean, Packer fan, they are so 
rude. I mean, like, I mean, they they call they they change the Wikipedia page for the Detroit Lions whenever they play them and say rotten things on Wikipedia about the Lions. It's terrible. Did you hear what they've? Oh my! Oh my God! Can you? <sighs> you know, some of us have Packer fan in our life. And we've categorized them as Packer fan and then made a lot of assumptions about what their capacity is, what value they have, what role they can play in our lives. And I tell you what, I would like to propose to you that the Samaritans were the Packer fans of their day. I would like to propose to you that the most oppressed people group we have in modern society represents the story of where the Samaritans were in their day. Come on. Doesn't matter if you're, doesn't matter what your story is. What's true is at some point, somebody told you that somebody was against you. Somebody told you that there was a people group that you needed to fear, that you had to be mindful of. At some point in your life, maybe like me, you get out of a van and you make this assumption that just because you don't understand a region or a group of people, that that means that they're dangerous and they want to steal your stuff. And so it's interesting because the Samaritans were these people. The Samaritans were literally the people that were, were most um, uh, oppressed. They were, if, if, if racism in itself uh, existed as it does today, this would be where the biggest conversation on racism would exist. It was against the Samaritans. You know, there's another chapter in Luke, and, and there's a story, and it's called The Good Samaritan. This literally would have been one of the most provoking, scandalous parables to tell in first century history. This literally would have been one of the most radical, mind-blowing, cantankerous, thought-provoking, like, illegal, like, I mean, like, who do you think you are telling a story about a good Samaritan? Don't you know what they've done? Don't you know what they don't deserve? Don't you, don't you know that they wear that cheese on their head? Don't you know they changed the Wikipedia page? Don't you know what they, all these things that they do? Don't you know that they are the Samaritans? They are the scum on the bottom of our shoe. And you are saying that the most elite of our society, the Pharisees would walk past, the most elite of our society, the Levites would walk past, and a Samaritan would stop to heal someone's wounds? Who do you think you are, Jesus Christ? Oh. Whew. But Jesus thought it was a pretty good idea to say that there was a people called Samaritans and they were good. You know, a lot of us want to think about the sheep or the coin or the sun, and, and we're like, oh, what, what's, what's, what's he trying to say? Oh, this is about eternity. Oh, the sheep, it's about eternity. That's what it's about. Yeah, it's about, oh, we're all going to rejoice, you know, when there's, when there's a, a sheep found. He, he would go and lose the one. Now that's what it's about. It's about go find the one. That's what the story is about, you know. Parable of the coin. Oh, that person, they were poor. That's, that's what this is about. Then God blessed them. They swept their floors, and they found their coin, and. Oh, this story's about family reconciliation. Oh, that's really nice. His dad and his son, they kind of made up. And, you know, 
God loves bad people sometimes too. They come home. Not that these things are wrong. Not that those auxiliary things are wrong. And, and not that what I'm about to propose to you is the most elite understanding of the scripture. But, you know, what, what if the point here is that everyone is accounted for? What if the point here is, hey, you know, Jesus is sitting there. He's like, you know, he, they don't understand. I'm sitting next to a tax collector. They were in bed with Rome. Everyone hated them. They were rich. You know, Jew, the Jews were impoverished. And here these tax collectors, they're making money off of poverty. I mean, they're just like they're terrible people. We hate the tax collectors. And then, of course, then there's just the sinners. And the sinners in that day were the people who were blatantly, you know, not doing sacrifices, blatantly living in sin, prostitutes, things like that. You know, good people to have in your life. And, um, and so here's Jesus hanging out with these people with the worst of the worst of the worst and the elite show up and they're trying to decide why is asking him, why is he hanging out with these people? And Jesus says, hey, let me start to have a conversation with you about value. Let's talk about livestock here. Let's talk about some sheep. You lose a sheep and you find a sheep. Heaven rejoices. So, let's go a little deeper. Let's talk about your wallet. You lose a coin, you find a coin, heaven rejoices. So, okay, let's go a little deeper. You have a son. You lose a son, and your son comes home, and all of heaven rejoices. So, you know, it's interesting, there's a, there's this idea, it's an idea, okay, this is an idea, this isn't, this is, uh, this is an idea. And this idea is, that the idea of the Samaritans where they lived, they lived in a northern position. And the north, from a Jewish perspective, is always a place of power. It's a place of authority, actually. Um, whoever's in the north, um, from the divided kingdom standpoint, we had northern Israel and then we had Judah below. There was two kingdoms that were divided early on, right? And the north was always the power position. And where the Samaritans were, they were, they were above Galilee, actually. And uh, north of where even Jesus was at. And that's where they would live and where they would dwell. And uh, somewhere between 80 and, and 90 miles north of Jerusalem. And so uh, Galilee being around 60 miles north of Jerusalem. And so here, here these people are from the north. And, and what we know about Jewish culture as well is that according to the law, that whenever a son would want to arbitrate or have his, his inheritance be arbitrated, that it had, the inheritance had to be dispersed to every child of inheritance in the family. And so what we know is that the firstborn son was always the arbiter. He was always the person who would go to the father, say, hey, this is what we want. This is how we want to dis, dis, um, split up. This is how it all should go. And so what we know about this story that's probably true or what would have been assumed true as Jesus told the story is that the elder brother also got his inheritance. Everyone say, hmm. And so here it is, the, pro the story of this prodigal son who had gone and had come back is, is here and, uh, and it's interesting because um, the, the, the elder brother, when he sees the younger brother come home, he doesn't go talk to the father. Who does he go talk to? Talks to a servant. 
Now, what you got to understand as well about Jewish culture is that a person of authority to go to a servant for information would have been considered embarrassing. Like this would have been considered some, like this is a faux pas. This is another faux pas. This is something that you would never do. The firstborn is supposed to have all the information. It's supposed to know about everything that's going on. And so for him to go to a servant to get information about what's going on back home would have been a very, very unique thing unless, unless there was shame over this firstborn son. And oftentimes, when it comes to birth order, there's a geographical position that's attached to it, and it's north. And I find it really interesting that we have Luke as the writer in this, in this story, who is, from a biblical standpoint, the number one sympathizer of Samaritans, is telling a story about an elder son and a younger son. A son of the north and a son of the south. Now what we know about the south is in Judah, this is where David came out of, and Jesus was the son of David. And so it's interesting in this story that it's the, it's the younger son, or from a southern position, a weaker position, is where favor is being communicated, and it's in the elder brother, or the northern position, if you will, where there is confusion, there is shame, there is regret, and yet for some reason... Come on, somebody. He's not able to go to his father. Look at your neighbor and say, everyone's accounted for. Do you see where I'm going? (laughs) So just picture this. Here's Jesus. I mean, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, I mean, these are, these are highly judicial, like, governmental people. People who made decisions about your life, like, on a daily basis. If you had a problem, yo, I'll solve it. A rabbi was in front of you. That's what was going on. And you have all these judges are hanging out, and they're all being exclusive over here. And Jesus, as a rabbi, is sitting around the tax collector and the prostitute. He's joking around. He's eating. They're sharing food. Who knows? They're breaking bread and maybe feeding one another. I mean, they're having a good time, and they're saying, hey, what are you doing with these people? And I think Jesus is just like, I mean, he just doubles down. He says, you think tax collectors and prostitutes? You think this is bad? Let me tell you a story about a brother in the north who's confused by his unfaithful younger brother of Judah who's confused by the unfaithfulness of Israel, who's confused by the unfaithfulness of the tribe of Judah, who would reject God and then reject God and then reject God and then go spend their inheritance and then go spend their inheritance and then they've crawled back to you. Father, I don't understand how you can still love Judah. I know they're the tribe of David. I know that they have all the inheritances. I know they have all the glitz and the glam. And they're, they're the dancers and the timbrels and the warriors and the tribe of Data. Woohoo! But I've been here and I've been faithful. Jesus is sitting there. He's like, hey, you think these tax collectors, these prostitutes are bad? Let me tell you a story. And I can only imagine the look on their faces. 
when the most hated, despised people group of their existence was being elevated and a moment that they could stand before Father. And we know that this Father is God the Father. And so Jesus is coming in with a radical moment where the most rejected people of their day would be able to come to the Father and the Father would say, look, all that I have is yours. You're included. You're important. You have value. All that I have is yours. Jesus in this moment was adding value to the most oppressed people in their world. And that day Jesus was inviting these people to pick up the feet of their heart to see things from a new perspective. They needed a new vantage point. Some of us that are in the room right now, and we, we've, we've been in moments where we felt like that all the odds were against us. We felt like our boss was against us. We felt like our, our co-workers were against us and they were sabotaging my project and, and trying to, you know, just oust me. Or, or there was a power play and, and, and I didn't get in for partner and, and they moved me out and now I can't even work there anymore. I'm so embarrassed. And there's some of you guys that, you know, just feel like your family is against you and you don't have a voice within your own family. And, and you feel oppressed and you feel like no one understands. And I'm just here to tell you that your Father in Heaven has this to say to you. All that I have is yours. It's yours. It's yours. It's yours. Which means relationships can grow. It means there can be breakthrough in your finances. It means there can be hope that you can get up tomorrow and know that you're loved and know that you have value. Church, I'm here to tell you that there's hope for every single people group in the world. There's hope and we carry it. But we only carry it if we're willing to pick up the feet of our heart and say, hey, I might not agree with you. I might not understand you. I might eat different food than you. I might talk differently than you. But I'd like to sit with you and eat with you and understand your pain. Understand your journey. That I would know how to love you. And maybe your greatest moment of need. You see, there's an opportunity for transformation that God is inviting us into. Where we would no longer deal with the labels of us and them. But we would expand the collective we. Come on, somebody. Most of us live in an isolated world. I'm making an assumption. In my experience... The people I'm around often surround themselves in a fairly isolated world. And in that, it takes a lot of risk to get out of the world that I know that I could go sit with someone that I don't understand, that I, that I may not get along with, that I may not have a lot of chemistry with. But ultimately, if the gospel says to go and to love and to see all people prosper, I have a responsibility to get out of my vantage point and to come over and to sit with the broken and to sit with the lost and to love the loveless and to give voice to the voiceless. Come on, somebody. Food for the hungry, clothes for the naked. This is the gospel. And the gospel isn't just about meeting their need. The gospel actually says they're included. They're included. Those that we don't understand and those that we fear are probably more included than you're currently willing to acknowledge. 
I would say that people are more included than I'm willing to acknowledge. It's uncomfortable. It costs you something. It costs you the moment to let God reveal to you that his love is bigger than you understand. I would propose to you that if you believe you've comprehended God's love, then it may be just a love that you're comfortable with. I would propose to you that in every season of your life, love should be challenging you for it to become greater in your life. That love has an, have, has an ever-increasing capacity to be bigger than we currently understand. Part of my prayer is, God, show me how to love more radically. Show me how to love, you know, and, and when we talk about, you know, a, a, you know, a radical love, we're not talking about just radical acceptance. We're, we're talking about being willing to empathize with people, to go where they're at, to understand where they're at, and then through the power of the Holy Spirit, love them into the future version that God sees them as. Come on, somebody. I mean, it's about us all going together and getting a massive upgrade. Looking more like Jesus. Once again, we're not trying to get people to look like me. We're trying to get people to look like Jesus. The goal of inclusion is not to get people to feel good. The goal of inclusion is to get people to look like Jesus. Come on, somebody. A tax collector and a sinner ate with Jesus because Jesus said, I want you to realize that you can be like me. Come on. And what if we were willing to devote ourselves to health and wholeness and and, and, and growth and development and, and love and, and increase and, and such a capacity where we'd be so willing to sit down with those who may not know who their father is and that when they would get around us, they would realize that they too can become just like their father because what's true is that you look just like your father. You look just like him. You're a son and a daughter of the king. You were made in his image and his likeness. And so the question has to be, is, is that visible for other people when they experience me? What are the power of my words? What, what am I saying? What am I communicating? How are people experiencing me? Are they experiencing a person who's mindful of all? Or are they experiencing someone who's just mindful of the bottom line and what they're trying to accomplish? I really believe that there's a grace over this house to love people right where they're at in a radical and supernatural way. I tell you what, Gen 1, I am so proud of you. This house, we've been digging the wells of honor. Come on, somebody. We've been digging the wells of value. We've been digging the wells of all people. We've been digging the wells of the gold inside of the hearts and purpose of people. Come on, we've been getting ready to go out and be a sign into the world about what it means for the Samaritans to know that all that our Father has is theirs. Come on, somebody. There's Samaritans at work. There's Samaritans in your family. There's Samaritans that have your last name. Come on, somebody. And they look just like you because you made them. And God's got a hope for them. God has a future for them. And we can't be distracted by what we don't understand. We can't be distracted by, you know, we can't let fear fill the distance between us and them. We have to let love lead us connection lead us, that they too would know that they have value and that they're worth it. 
look at your neighbor and say, you're worth it. Why don't you stand with me? Is this all right? Oh. If you don't mind, if you just close your eyes. Mark, could you come? I'm going to ask the uh, ushers to come forward for communion as well. Back in James chapter 3, just keep your eyes closed if you don't mind. Thank you so much. It says, but this wisdom that is from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Purity, peace, gentleness, open to reason, full of mercy, impartiality, and sincerity. Father, right now in Jesus' name, I release over everyone in this room a supernatural face-to-face encounter with the one who is wise. And so I speak over generation one purity right now in Jesus' name. Let purity come. Let the fruit of our wisdom be purity. To the pure, all things are pure. And so I ask right now that the revelation that we are washed white as snow would come over us. That we are forgiven. And that in our forgiven position, we can now release the encounter forgiveness to others. Let peace come in this place. Let a peaceable wisdom come over us. Lord, let us not be contentious. Let us not be promoters of strife or chaos. Let us delete the comments. Cool down and come back with peace. Let us be gentle. Using words that invite people into moments, experience, Empathy, authenticity, transparency. Let us be open to reason. Let us have a wisdom, God, that's willing to listen first. Lord, not listening to respond, but listening to understand. Not listening so we can say the next thing we want to say, but listening as we move the the feet of our heart to shift our vantage point. Let us be open to new thoughts. Let us have a wisdom that is full of mercy and good fruits. Let mercy triumph over judgment, God, in our wisdom. Lord, let the decisions of our lives condemn judgment, unnecessary judgment, presumptuous judgment, assuming judgment, segregated judgment. Father, let your mercy come over us and destroy these things in Jesus' mighty name. Lord, let us show no impartiality and let sincerity lead us. In Jesus' mighty name, the rich and the poor, the young and the old, the dark skin and the light skin, and everything in between. God, let us show no impartiality. 
Let us show no partiality. Let us become impartial. In Jesus' mighty name, I declare wisdom over this house. In Jesus' mighty name, that Lord, as we see Packer fan, as we see Samaritans, as we see those who confuse us, as we see those that we don't understand, that, Lord, we would move the feet of our heart and shift our vantage point to understand what love looks like in the moment that we would call them forward. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear that the world would know that your love was given for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Lord, let us give. And let us give radically, generously, in Jesus' mighty name.